It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or estate law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raise, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song. Okay, welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Okay, so those of you who don't know, this show is divided in different parts. The first part, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, nostalgia, whatever. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're interested in film, so we talk about film. And one film I would like to talk about for a few minutes anyway is Paul Apostle of Christ. And Beth and I, you know, saw the film uh, last night at the AMC Empire 25. And Beth, what did you think of the film? It was absolutely inspirational. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I know probably most of us, most everybody listening to us, saw Passion of the Christ with Mel Gibson. I could not watch that. It was unwatchable for me because it was... You saw the trauma on the screen. You saw the the blood and the horror. I, I can't. I just can't sit through that. This was wonderful because the acting was great. Um, it and you knew awful things were happening. You know, people would would go off, and you knew they were going to die. But I didn't have to watch tigers rip people apart. It was just as touching. It just wasn't so horrific. Um, Jim Caviezel, of course, was wonderful as Luke. And um, James Faulkner, I thought, was amazing as the older, wiser um, Paul. Uh, I I just, I loved it. I loved it. It, 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 it was between the the craziness in my mind of some of the modern day movies and the maybe the the religious movies or inspirational movies that don't seem real they're 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 too lighthearted this was just i loved it i just loved it and with so many of our friends were there so i would just like to thank everybody that joined us for the movie and um Hopefully we'll we'll be able to do it again sometime. Mike, what was your take? Because I mean, I, we all do some. We all think a little bit differently about the movie. No, I thought it was a very good film. I mean, it's not a blockbuster, but I think I hope it'll do well. It is a good film. It's much better than most films that I've seen in the last ten years because it's a serious subject. It's good acting. There's you know you don't have cars blowing up, but of course you have people burned here and there too. Um, it, it it's a very strong, powerful film. And by the way, next week on our show, we're, we're really happy to have Jim Caviezel is going to be on our show next week, and he's talking about why he made the film. And he's a very spiritual person, and I think that'll come across very quickly in the interview. And I hope we get uh, James Faulkner, who played Paul. I hope we can get him in the next few weeks. Because to me, he's a very interesting actor. We all know who Jim Caviezel is, you know, Jesus Christ, Count of Monte Cristo, a uh, person of interest, and so forth. But James Faulkner is one of those character actors who's been around for 40 years, and we've all seen him, but he's not the type of guy necessarily in some parts you would remember. Now, if you're an old-timer like us, you might remember James Faulkner in I, Claudius, where he played Herod. You might remember him from the Jerry Brett Sherlock Holmes series, where he played Stapleton. And in the Hound of the Baskervilles. The Hound of the Baskervilles, yeah. yeah. And, of course, younger people may know him from, like my, our son Michael knew him from uh, Game of Thrones, and he was also in Da Vinci's Demons. And, and, and Downton Down, Abbey. And Downton Abbey, yeah. He's yeah. one of those guys who pops up all the time. Uh, and, and he's a very good actor. And I, I we met him briefly at the premiere of the uh, movie a few weeks ago. 
advanced showing, and he said he made the film because he was tired of so many people denigrating Christianity, and he thought he, he wanted to be part of a movie that promoted Christianity, promoted the love of Paul for his fellow human beings and, and the love of, of Christ. So um, that's why he did the movie. James Caviezel said he did the movie to save souls. So James Caviezel is going to be on next week. Hopefully we'll be able to get James Faulkner on in another couple of weeks because I think he's one of those very interesting character actors and he'll be more established, I think, now that he's played Paul. Now, we probably should do a little bit of estate planning. So, Beth, you want to answer the email question we have? on? on? Yes, here it's, hello, my husband passed away three years ago. I have one daughter and want to put her name on my deed and take mine off. She lives with me and takes care of me. I have friends telling me there should be no problem and will make it easy for my daughter when I'm no longer here. I'm told I just need to make sure I have a life estate. Is this true, Nancy, from Staten Island? Well, I would prefer a trust to the life estate. And the reason for that, and you may say none of these things are going to happen, but in combination one thing should happen. One, God forbid the daughter passes away before Nancy then mom has no more control over the house. And she has no more control over the house when um, once she gives the life estate over. So if Nancy doesn't have a will or she doesn't properly plan anything, you know, that house goes according to, to the daughter's will, and that may not necessarily give us the best plan. And if she has no will at all, it may be chaos. So with the trust, trust you say, I give the house to my daughter, if something happens to my daughter, the house goes, and, of course, people have to tell me what they want. And we can work out such ways that maybe even the house goes back to mom if something happens to the daughter, so she has full control. But you just give a life estate, something happens to the daughter, mom could get hurt. And she may not be able to sell or mortgage the house or do anything else, depending on who's in the daughter's estate. Number two, let's say the daughter gets sued, and let's say she, she gets sued and there's a lawsuit against her, and there's a judgment against her. Well, the judgment goes against the house, which means mom can't sell the house or do anything with it until that judgment is paid. Same if her daughter has an IRS lien. You, you know, they can't touch the house until after mom's gone, but she can't sell a mortgage, get a reverse mortgage on the house, as long as that IRS lien is in place. And, you know, the daughter owns part of the house. If It's it's cleaner if the house is, has a lot of equity in it, it's gone up in value over the years, it's much better for the daughter tax-wise if they sell the house while they're alive, if mom's the owner, you know, because daughter owns part of the house. But th that's another point. If you don't sell it, it doesn't make that much of a difference. And, you know, there, there's so many bad things that can happen. You know, daughter gets married, and then next thing you know, part of the, part of the house goes to her husband, which is, may not be what, what mom wants. So I prefer the trust. We can accomplish everything in the trust, avoid probate, Get the house out tax-free to mom and, you know, and, and save that house from a nursing home if the daughter's lived in the house for more than two years. So I, pre I prefer the, the trust to the life estate. Too many bad things can happen on the life estate, and especially if something happens to daughter. Mom has lost full control of the house. She's a prisoner of the house, and that might not necessarily be a bad thing. And I know a lot of people put their head in the sand, and they say, well, you know, nothing's going to happen. But you never know. Something could, something could happen. All right, we have a call from Paul. Yes, Paul, what's your question? About 25, 25 years ago, my sister went up to Peekskill, New York, to meet a lawyer. Yeah. Who, she wrote an affidavit out. They asked her, her name and address. Her son, my nephew, was left quite a sum of money, a substantial sum of money. Yeah. Uh, we're, not related, we're not related to the deceased. He passed away January 3rd of this last year. Oh, wait a minute. Who's the and deceased? I'm sorry. Who's the deceased? Uh, this guy, Arthur Dinerstein. He's 82 years okay, old. He okay. passed away January 3rd of this year. Right. Now, I was notified about it about a week later from someone who went to the funeral. Not many people went because he was, he's, he was not, not known by many people. Okay. He, he, didn't, he did not tell us where the will was, so he died. And the will, with the will you know, vanished with him because, you know, he didn't, he didn't leave it in the spot. Now, I try to try check the uh, uh, office the, um, of a records, you know, a county records office, surrogate right. court. They said you can't do anything without a death certificate, and you're not related to the family. Now, 100%. 
our name is in that will. We cannot locate it in order to, you know, you know, open it up and say, you know, we're supposed to receive what was in the will. So yeah, we, can't, we cannot locate it. Yeah, we without for, we're not next to pin. And the executor has not contacted my sister, who went up there twenty five years, and she was so stupid she didn't get the lawyer's uh, business card to know. You know, we could retrieve it. You know, well, well, who's the executor? That's a question. Whoever it is. Oh, yeah, because you said the executor didn't notify you. I thought maybe you would have. Right, uh, right, right. The and they may was. not want to notify us because they know there's a lot of money in there, and we're not even related to the family, although we were, we were very close friends with the, with the person deceased. But he wants to, like, destroy the will. Maybe. I'm just assuming, you know, hypothetically, very probable. He'll destroy the will. There is no will, and the money will go to him because he's the next of kin. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't have to let my sister. My sister wrote an affidavit. She should have got a copy. Was she supposed to get a copy of the affidavit? Well, that was up to the, the decedent or the testator at the time, whether she gets a copy mm-hmm. of the will. She, she said she never got a copy. I said, who was the lawyer in Peekskill? I got to call all the lawyers in Peekskill. I hope there's not that many. I know in New York City, it'd be a million. Maybe there are 50 lawyers and ask them. How do you know there is a will? Oh, absolutely. Because even... The person who deceased spoke to a friend of mine, and they asked him, you still have that will? I should have asked him, give me a copy. Let me know where it is. And they said, yes, and I, I have not changed it. I have not changed it. And how long ago was this? You, uh, about two months ago. About December. two months ago. And when did he die? January 3rd. Okay, well, you know, you can get some affidavit. You could get a court order to open up the, uh, the house to search for the will. Do you know if anybody's taking possession of the property? No, there's no property. It's well, his apartment, wherever he lived. It's quite uh, it's Peekskill, New York. Yeah, but no, did, Putnam Valley. He lived in Putnam Valley. Did anybody take possession and, of his apartment wherever he lived? He, I think, he had a roommate, roommate, and they dumped everything out, so we can't go look for it. The roommate dumped will, everything out. I guess by now they cleaned everything out. They, when you pass away, sir, I think they put everything in a black plastic bag and just dispose of it, or give some clothes to the. Did he die in the apartment? Did he die in the apartment? Where the police yes, were called? He died in sleep. Yeah, he died in sleep. He where the police called, did they take an inventory of it? Uh, they must have. And the hospital he went to, Putnam Valley Hospital. No, no, then he didn't die in, the, in his apartment, then he died in the hospital. No, they said he didn't wake up when they, I don't know how that works. What, you know, officially how he would, what the, what the, did the, you go the, to the pu- that, did you go to the public, okay. administ- did you go to the public administrator's office? You know, I'm sorry, no, is Peekskill, what? is Peekskill the, the county seat? Is that where the courthouse yeah. is? Okay. No, no, but he lived in Putnam Valley. That Peekskill's where the lawyer was. Okay, the lawyer all right. Was not- Whatever the, the county clerk is, check with the surrogate's court and see if the public administrator has a file. That's number one. Two, public, uh, let me write that. Public, public administrator. Has the file. See if he has a At file. What? See if he has yeah. a file. See. And see if, if anybody's a- applied to be the administrator or executor of the estate. Has anyone applied that's the surrogates court in the in the county it's putnam county has anyone applied has anyone applied what was that again to be the administrator or executor of the estate to administrator or executor. if we find who the executor is then they have to notify my sister who well then if you know who the executor that? is you can contact them now unfortunately yes, I'm, I'm running on a really hard break and we need to to, to take a break but if you if you want to hold on if you want to call back in another two minutes I'll talk to you, you know, I will, offline I will, okay I will. all right will. all right you're listening I to ask the lawyer with me Mike Connors we'll take a short break and after that we're going to be talking to former state senator Surf Maltese about the triangle shirtwaist factory a, a tremendous tragedy that happened in New York a little over a hundred years ago so we'll take a short break right now Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. 
As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, April 23rd at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7117 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. at Buckley's, 2926 Avenue S in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, on Wednesday, April 25th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m p.m. and 7 p.m. and on Thursday, April 26th at the Montauk Club, 25 8th Avenue in Park Slope, Brooklyn at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718 238 500. That's Connors and Sullivan, 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan, plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, everybody knows that I'm a baseball fan. And a lot of young people, baseball has been a good foundation to improve their lives and go forward. And one group that does an awful lot for the youth of Kings County, Brooklyn, is the American Legion Kings County Youth Recreational Facilities. And I'm very pleased to have on its chairman, Dennis Verga. How are you doing today, Dennis? All righty. How are you doing, Mike? Okay. So you're going to have a dinner on April 15th at Gargiulo's. What's it about? Okay. This, this is our only fundraiser of the year. And we have like one fun fundraiser in order to raise money to keep the fields operational. By operational, I mean clay, uh, sod, dirt, uh, seed, uh, you know, fertilizer, and uh, you know stuff like that. And you cut the grass and the equipment. So it costs money, and you know, of course, things break and repairs. So we try to raise money with this one dinner in order to uh, uh, cut, cut, cut the cost because we allow the kids to play there for, for, for nothing. So it's just a matter of us maintaining it and, and, and keeping it going. Now, we do uh, accommodate the five boroughs, of course, and also Troy, New York. They love to come down and play with us. So we do do a lot for the kids. And not only do we do a lot for the kids, but we try to get them into colleges. And, of course, you know that some of the kids do make it to the majors, but not that many. But we rather we like to see the kids at least get a college education. Now, when you say not many make it to the pros, but actually quite a few of your guys have made it into professional baseball. Can you name a few? A few in here would be, be uh, Sean Dunstan, a shortstop for the Cubs, Dylan Patanzas, who pitches for the Yankees, relief pitcher, uh, Pedro Beato, he pitches for the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates as a relief pitcher. Offhand, you know, there's, there's quite a few more. Uh, Manny Ramirez. That's a pretty Boston. big one. Yeah, yeah, Manny. The fundraiser is going to be on April 15th at Gargiulo's. How do you buy tickets? How do you get information about the dinner? You could uh, call this number to get tickets and also ads, which are very good, or donations. This is just as good. And the, the, the number to call is 718 
372-9800 and ask for Sergio. Okay, you want to repeat that again? Yes, the phone number is 718-372-9800 and the person's name is Sergio Allegretti. Okay, now who are you going to be honoring this year? Okay, we have we have quite four honorees. John Malone Jr., Marie Castellano, Tony LaBianco, and Anna Marie Fortunato. Now, those of you who know Tony LaBianco, and I, those of you who listen to our show know Tony LaBianco, but he was the actor who was, well, the bad guy in The French Connection back years ago, and of course is well known for playing Fiorella LaGuardia on Broadway and off-Broadway in his one-man show, The Little Flower. And he, he's been doing a lot of work for the veterans over the years, so I'm, I'm glad to see that the American Legion is honoring him. Yes, uh, very good uh, honoree. All the honorees are uh, excellent honorees. They've done a lot for their community. They've been helping veterans, so this is what we do. We try to give back a little to the memories of, of not the memories, but the uh, accolades that each of these uh, honorees had in their own community, which is Brooklyn. So if you want to support American Legion Baseball, it's a really a worthy program to help kids in need. See you on Gargiulo's on April 15th. Thank you, Dennis. Yeah, thank you very much, Mike. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, we've had a lot of different guests from politics, and we have a lot of different guests talking about history. And today we're going to have a former politician talking about history. With me is former State Senator Surf Maltese. How are you doing today? How are you doing, Mike? Good to be here. All right. Glad to have you here. There's an anniversary coming up about a tragedy that happened in New York over, you know, 100 years ago. It has a personal connection to you. Can you explain to the audience? We're talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Yes, I will. That happened on what date? March, Saturday, March 25th, 1911. Uh, It was a terrible tragedy. 
and it took 146 lives. Until uh, 9-11, it was the largest loss of life for a workplace in the uh, the United States. My grandmother, Katerina, and my two aunts, uh, Rosaria and Lucia, perished in that fire. And that's my connection to the fire. My grandfather, Serafino, who I was named after, in one fell swoop lost his wife and two daughters. Where was your grandfather born? My grandfather was born in Masala, Sicily, Italy. He came over about 1907, and he came over alone, as many immigrants at the time did. He was uh, was a bootmaker in Italy with an education because he had been in the military. And he came to the United States and then uh, made some money and sent for his family. And his family then came over uh, about 1908, and that was my father, Paolo, they called him, but we called him Paul, my uncle Vito, uh, the two aunts, and my grandmother, Katharina, and another aunt, Maria, four years old. And unfortunately, she sickened on the trip over and was admitted to Ellis Island when the ship arrived and died at Ellis Island. So his entry into the New World was for his family was beset by tragedy. All of a sudden, he's faced with a tragedy beyond imagination now. How did the fire happen, and how were the people trapped in the building? Well, uh, the fa- the factory was a brand new, uh, relatively new, fireproof building. The police chief at the time, the fire chief at the time, said the building was fireproof. Unfortunately, the people weren't. It was a knitting mill in most of the floors, the Triangle Factory, a shirt it was called Triangle Shirtwaist. They rented the eighth, ninth, and tenth floors, the top floors of the building, and approximately 500 uh, people worked in that building, largely immigrants, primarily Jewish immigrants, Italian immigrants, and people from Eastern Europe. But the Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe were the majority of the workers there because the owners were Isaac Harris and uh, uh, his uh, his re- relative, uh, and uh, they were Jewish uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe, and that's what they tended to hire for the to make these shirtwaists. The shirtwaists were a relatively new fashion garb. At the time, Charles Dana Gibson was the the artist, had come up with the Gibson Girl from the the early 1900s, the beginning of the 1900s, and it was a very fashionable uh, blouse, and... uh, because women were first coming into the workplace at the uh, end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, and they were abandoning all these cumbersome garments that were okay for social wear or for society, but not if you were going to be a worker, an office worker. The women of the day were called typewriters, not the ins- not the machine, but the women who worked in offices were called typewriters, and they uh, adopted these Gibson girl blouses. So it was a relatively new uh, um, uh, attire, and it was everywhere. And skirts were getting shorter, clothes were getting uh, clothes were getting less bulky, less cumbersome, and that's what the uh, uh, the they called them the shirtwaist kings. That's what the shirtwaist kings were making. And uh, the the uh, workers were primarily machine operators, sewing machine operators, and that was also relatively new because they had figured out how to mechanize them so that the motor was at the end of the aisle and the, there would be a string of sewing machines, about 15 or 20, and the women would work on facing each other in rows, and uh, they would work on the sewing machines, and they would toss the, it was a, there was a flammable g- a cotton used for the blouses. They would get thrown under the workplaces. The cutters would cut a number of, doc- a number of garments at a time. They would also uh, 
uh, have all the cuttings there, all the uh, uh, the paper and garments and this highly flammable cotton would be thrown on in the on the floor or would be thrown in these big boxes. Nobody knows for sure how the fire started, but because the cutters, who had were a step above the sewing machine operators, uh, would sneak smokes on their in their with their cigars and cigarettes, it was believed that a cutter must have inadequately put out a, a cigarette or a cigar, and that it caught fire. The fire started on the eighth floor. And uh, the they had uh, buckets that were connected to fire hoses. Unfortunately, as the fire progressed, the fire hoses were, were not working. They weren't connected. And nobody uh, figured out ultimately why they had not worked. There were pails uh, around... Uh, around all the, the floors of the uh, factory. The eighth floor was was a main working floor. The ninth floor was a main working floor. There were approximately 200 or so uh, workers on the eighth floor. There were approximately 200 workers on the ninth floor. On the 10th floor, there were approximately 150 people, but that was the executive offices, and that's where the two shirtwaist kings were, and it was a day that the families had come in to go shopping, so the their families were there, their family members were there. Uh, Virtually nobody on the 10th floor ended up perishing. Uh, And the fire, as I said, uh, broke out on the 8th floor. The 8th floor uh, had, they had a new system, something like a fax machine. You wrote on the 8th floor and it appeared on a on a pad on the ninth and 10th floor. Unfortunately, when the fire broke out, the telephone operator who was uh, temporarily working the board tried to use this device and it did not work adequately and the 10th, fl- the, none of the, the, neither of the other two floors saw it. The, she then used the telephone. It broke out at 4.45 in the afternoon on a Saturday. Saturday quitting time was 4.45. Ordinarily, quitting time was later. Ordinarily, it was a nine-hour day. Saturday was a seven-hour day, and it was payday. But so when she then called the 10th floor to tell the bosses that there was a a fire, the phone was such that when you were speaking to one floor, you could not reach the other floor. Therefore, somebody on the 10th floor panicked when they got the call and left the phone off the hook. And as a result, nobody ever advised the 9th floor. So those on the 10th floor were able to get out not only using elevators, staircases, and going up to the roof. Those on the 8th floor were able to get out because the... uh, there were cans of cans of grease on the staircases that they used for lubricating the sewing machines, and they exploded or caught fire, making the staircases impassable. There were four elevators, two freight and two passenger. Or, uh, the freight elevators became uh, inoperable almost immediately. Apparently, they crowded into the elevators, and they jammed them, and they just went to the basement, but they did they they reached the basement but uh, but they couldn't operate the two passenger elevators were operated by two heroes joe zito and gaspar martellaro and they made something like 8 or 9 or 10 trips the last two trips on each the people were in the elevator with their hair or their clothes actually burning uh the elevators only stopped they were so jammed that the elevators went all the way to the cellar and crashed down there with a loss of life. And both elevator operators lived, though, to to uh, to, to survive the fire. The uh, so you had a situation that the terrible flames were on the eighth floor, but the majority—well, I'd say the majority of the people managed to get out. 
the tenth floor, the almost unanimously they they got out. The ninth floor was where all the carnage took place. And we need to take a short sure. break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're talking to State Senator Surf Maltese about the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We're talking to former Senator Surf Maltese about the Triangle Shirtwaist fire, which happened a little over 100 years ago this time of year. And, and of course, the fire is very personal to you, Surf, and, and explain again why. The fire is personal, but personal to me because my grandmother and my two aunts perished in the fire. They were machine operators, sewing machine operators in the building making shirtwaists. Now, you were talking about the fire. You talked about the elevators, and people escaped through the elevators. How did Well, the, some people escaped through the elevators? Yes, yeah, some people escaped through the elevators. It was a combination. Some of them, the lucky ones, managed to go down the remaining staircases. But unfortunately, as I mentioned, some of them were blocked, and when the machine oil exploded, they became impassable. Others were blocked because the owners had kept doors locked. And uh, the, therefore, they were unable to go down. Also, one of the remedies that legislation changed was to change the way doors open from factory sites. Now, all doors have to open out. Uh, what happened in the triangle, many of the doors opened in, and especially on the 8th and ninth floor, as a result, the panic, panicked operators piled up against the fl the doors, were unable to get out, and when the firemen came and took out the bodies, the majority of the bodies were uh, against the closed doors that d did not open out. Also, one of the changes made by the legislature in 1911 and following years, and were even still being made when I was there, and I put in a number of legislative changes, but they were basically exit signs, Doors opening outward, push bars on doors so that you can open, capacity regulations, fire escape regulations. The fire escapes on the, the fire escape was located central to the building, and it, believe it or not, it went from the 10th floor only to the 6th floor. It was a, a violation of even of the regulations then. As a result, it was flimsy. And when the women started piling on the fire escape, they ended up uh, breaking the fire escape from the wall, and uh, uh, many women plummeted to their deaths from 
that central way, and there was no exit to the street from the fire escape. Uh, it just went down to the sixth floor, and then you had to go through the building, through the adjoining building, to get out to the street. So you had a combination of calamities. You had uh, flammable material. The whole entire fire lasted less than 20 minutes. The firemen were called almost immediately. The fire alarm was thrown at 445. The firemen were on the scene at 447, two minutes. Horse-drawn fire apparatus came to the scene, and the firemen, many of them were able to go up the staircases. Many of them were able to save a lot of the women who were on their way out going down the staircases. When the fire apparatus arrived, the one of the terrible problems, the fire was on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floor. The fire ladders at the time reach only to, reached only to the 7th floor. In other words, there was a 30-foot gap between the, the end of the fire ladders and the women, many of which were on the windowsills of the 8th and 9th floor uh, with no other choice but to jump. So the flames were were at their heels, and women and men, some men, out of the 146, all but 24 were women, the majority young women. My grandmother was 38, my aunt Rosaria was 14, and my aunt Lucia was 18. And the, there were two other 14-year-olds, uh, 14 was the youngest of any of the workers, and they were, uh, there was one other trio in one family that was lost, and but there were many sisters because it was viewed as a desirable job. The salaries ranged from ten dollars a week to uh, to fifteen dollars a week. It was piecework, and as a result, when somebody in a family got in, the they told their relatives. So. The other problem was when the women would throw themselves out the window into the nets, the nets would not hold the women. Uh, they would break from the firemen's hands. The sidewalk was uh, in glass panels par partially and stone, and yet uh, many of the bodies hit the pavements with such force that they broke right through the glass panels into the basement. Uh, so you had a situation, the fire ladders didn't reach, the fire hoses delivered only a weak stream above the seventh floor were absolutely useless, and the obviously the staircases were impassable. With locks, the Shirtwaist brothers were ultimately tried in a criminal court, but it was a biased court run by a former owner of a factory was the judge. And the lawyer for the Shirtwaist Kings was one of the most prominent lawyers at the time, a fellow called Max Stoyer. And the prosecutors, unfortunately, uh, I believe they were, they were uh, good-hearted and, and, and unbiased and were trying to secure a conviction for this terrible uh, tragedy. And the uh, Shirtwaist Kings were acquitted Ultimately, they were sued by some of the survivors in a civil court, and but the court had to prove that they knew the doors were locked and had were ordered. This is the Shirtwaist Kings. So ultimately, there was a settlement made for those people who had sued uh, approximately less than a hundred, and they secured payments of seventy-five dollars per. A dead worker. So, uh, but it did provide uh, history making changes to protect workers now. Uh, although there are still many tragedies taking place exactly the same with locked doors, exits inadequately marked, it created a uh, cataclysmic change because out of luck, a woman, Frances Perkins, who ultimately became labor secretary to FDR, was in Washington Square Park having lunch, and she actually was at the scene. And 
was involved in remedial legislation forever after. The assemblyman for the area was Alfred E. Smith, who became governor and a presidential candidate. And the state senator for the area was Robert Wagner, who became U.S. senator. So they spent a good part of the rest of their lives trying to to effectuate remedial legislation. It was a terrible fire. Uh, and but unfortunately, similar fires are occurring today in other countries, and are occurring right here in New York State and in the United States. The immigrants are different from different countries, but the tragedy is the same: loss of life. Getting back to your 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 grandfather and your father, how do they survive this? I mean, how do they get through it life? Was, it was terrible. Uh, of course, I was only born in 1932. And I lived on the Lower East Side. But uh, women were still walking around all those years later in black because they had lost, uh, they had lost the relatives in the fire. Uh, people, the, people remembered the fire. People talked about the fire. My grandfather, as I said, was a bootmaker, and he had a shoe store. He had an altar in the shoe store, a little elderly people at that time, some still do, they keep a sh- small altar and they had candles on it and pictures of of his uh, departed uh, uh, family members. He, uh, as I said, he, he lost his five-year-old on El- who is uh, on Ellis Island. He lost his 14-year-old and 19-year-old in the fire together with his wife. So his family was cut from three women and three men to three men without women. He was one of the holiest men I ever met. I never heard him as a kid, and we lived 49 First Avenue, which was on the corner, 3rd Street and 1st Avenue. And I never heard uh, a cross word from him. I mean, some people say that, but he had survived the tragedy. He never talked about it other than when he prayed. And but he was he was a very generous man he became a uh uh host at that time he no longer fixed shoes he had been a shoemaker it was a shoemaker shop my father's upholstery st- shop was right next door and it became a clubhouse for s- older italian men who played cards in the back uh and who uh, once in a while would eat uh meals that were prepared by the men it also was a favorite hangout for many of the Irish policemen. Policemen were almost unanimously Irish. Uh, I, even even when I was around in nineteen, uh, from then on, I grew up there. Uh, I don't remember any policemen that weren't Irish, at least growing up. But it was a democratic clubhouse in later years, and uh, the. Uh, the uh, leaders would come to to the clubhouse because that's where the the voters were, and it was their entree to the Italian community. And my grandfather, uh, as I said, was a religious man, and it helped him survive. My father was too young when the fire took place. I believe he was four. My uncle Vito, though, was I believe he was twelve. So he, but he also was unable to talk about the fire. I know fire was always discussed in the house. My mother was always worried about the stove and and a fire breaking out, but it affected their lives because they grew up in a house without women. And, of course, by happenstance, I never had a grandmother on the other side. Uh, and as a result, uh, we never had a grandmother in the family. We had aunts on the other side, but... Uh, it, it dramatically, disastrously affected their lives as it did the lives of most of the Lower East Side. Most of the people lived within walking distance of the factory, which was on Washington Place. And as a result, it affected terribly the, the neighborhood. And it was, while it was different immigrants, it was exactly the same neighborhood that were the people, the parishioners, that were lost uh, in the General Slocum six years before in 1905, where o- over a thousand people died in the boat in the tragedy.
Why do you think it's important to remember the fire and the victims of the fire? Well, this this fire is much more important than, for instance, and not because my family's involved, than the General Slocum, because there were a lot of laws, maritime laws, that then were put into effect to protect people that would travel by boat. This was uh, was important because it was a, a fire, a tragedy that affected not uh, not only the people that died and the people that survived them, but affected the entire United States because of the fire laws were changed because it was the toward the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. I haven't mentioned it previously in this in this speech in this talk, but. 100,000 people lined up to view the bodies and identify the bodies. 200,000 people from New York with a much lower population participated in the first funeral cortege. The second funeral cortege, they estimate there were almost 400,000 people lining the streets. The the, uh, funeral wagons that were pulled by horses were supposed to be pulling the survivors who were unknown. There were six unknown survivors. My grandmother was one of them originally. My grandfather was the one to identify the last body identified uh, at that time. He didn't identify my grandmother's body till December. So here's a poor man going after identifying the bodies of his two daughters, going to what they were no longer at Misery Lane, which is where they had the bodies, he was trying to identify it by the belongings, and he finally identified her by a wedding ring that some recollection came up, and she was her body was removed from the unknown monument at Greenwood Cemetery and then put into our family plot to be with her own. Thank you for the story. Thank you for bringing history to life. It was a very sad part of New York history, but again, thank you for contributions to history. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. 